Welcome along. It's the Current State of Music podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cracknell. I'm a broadcaster, DJ and mix engineer from Brighton in the UK. And I started this podcast uh, to find out basically where the music industry was at right now because I was looking to start a career in it. But now that I have a career in it, I'm finding it more interesting to start talking about the uh, the side that maybe people don't talk about, people's journeys, the obstacles that they they face and they overcome to create some sort of success. And success being whether it's selling a million records, headlining festivals, running festivals, running a successful label, or just earning enough money from music to pay your mortgage and to keep you doing the thing that you love. Success is a many-faced dice, as it were. And uh, all these stories, hopefully, are as inspirational to you as they are to me. So this time we're chatting to a guy who runs a label called BBE, I'm sure. Certainly the record buying aficionados among you will recognise that name. And it's an interesting chat because I think BBE started maybe a year or two before I started DJing and started buying records. And you always think that things that come before you have been around for a long time. And I didn't realise that BB had only been going about a year before me and you sort of look at some of the releases with people like Masters at Work and you think, wow, they've got some heavy hitters and they must have been going a while to build up that reputation. So it's kind of an eye-opener to realise that they hadn't actually been going that long, they just kind of put it out there. And I think that is a story in itself, just sort of putting things out there and seeing who picks up on it. Things aren't always well, maybe what they seem. But Lee tells a good story. He's a storyteller. He's a raconteur, I would say. And I really enjoyed chatting with him for this one. We have a mutual friend in Jean-Claude up at If Music. And we certainly bonded over that. And Jean-Claude obviously puts compilations out on Lee's BBE label so yeah this this episode was a really enjoyable one I didn't have to do much talking as I said Lee's a real raconteur he's got lots of stories and likes talking and uh, I hope it's not long before we catch up again for a chat because uh He's easy company, and I like listening to stories of how people have kind of done it and all the minute crazy stuff that happens in between, and Lee's got all that. So hopefully you'll enjoy this too. I'll be back at the end of the episode with a bit of housekeeping and to tell you who's coming next week. But for now, I'm going to leave you in the company of Lee Bright from BBE. Okay, Lee Bright, welcome to The Current State of Music. Thank you so much, Chris, for inviting me along. Can you describe your part of the whole world of music? I'll try, yes. I am officially titled Label Manager at BBE Music, 
yep. here. I have been working alongside Peter and what is now a very extended family of people. I started in 1999 and in the last 10 years I have also been freelancing at Cherry Red Records All right. as uh, assistant to the business affairs manager. That role has in the more recent past dwindled as I have had to give over more and more time to BBE. What this has allowed me to do is to have a very different perspective by, by, by bridging sort of two independent labels, BBE being a very small indie right. relative to Cherry Red, which probably one of the largest indies in the UK, if not Europe. Right, wow. Well, we'll get back to where you are now and what you're doing and those part, those aspects of what you're doing. But I want to, as we normally do on the podcast, is look back in time and sort of venture back to your early memories of music. If there was anything that really stands out where kind of music became more of a thing than just background noise. I, I grew up in a house quite unusual. We didn't have a record player. There were no musical influences from my parents whatsoever. The only thing that I can recall from a very early age is an out-of-tune, antiquated uh, radiogram. And there was a black and white picture on my mum's dressing table of Cliff Richard. And this is something I can remember from about four years old. My brother, five years older than me, um, he uh, managed to get enough of his paper round money together to buy a radio and that was quite exciting because I shared a room with him and so by the age of about seven, he was probably now 12, 13, I was going to sleep listening to Radio Caroline because I right. grew up on the Essex coast. Yes. Now I might not remember much about Radio Caroline but what I do remember is going to sleep to Kraftwerk's Autobahn. Wow. Which was perhaps something that was rather mesmerising and, and very different for a small town sort of country boy. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was that my brother was a big influence on me because I was only really experiencing the music that he was bringing into the house. He was... He was hanging around with older, older boys, if you like, from the street. And I, and I do remember clearly one day, one of the very oldest of his friends um, came by with a portable record player and they barred me from the bedroom that I shared with my brother <laughs> and loudly out of, the, out of the room, they were clearly playing 45s from, from the charts. Yeah. But I just strongly recall feeling like I wanted a piece of the action. Uh, and there was something very exciting about not just the fact that there was music, but it was also something very exciting about this machine yeah. that was bringing it out because yeah, I, I, we didn't have that in our, in our house. And then a few, a few years later, I think I was 14 years old, um, I, I, I was, uh, my brother was engaging with me at that time and he took me to my first ever live concert. Which was? Pink Floyd. Wow. Which 
totally blew my mind. Yeah. It was the water, it was um, Earl's Court. I just, the smells, the sights, the sound, everything. I think it had a very, very, well, I think it had a powerful effect on everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, and maybe that was the seed planted that made me want to, to be in some small way involved in this business. Yeah. It, it did take many, many years of um, uh, quite an alarming um, array of uh, jobs which I kind of fell into uh, along the way before, before I ended up um, where I am today. But, but were um, you, sort of after that gig, were you then like, okay, I'm now interested in buying music, I'm interested in listening to I, this stuff? I, we were, my brother and I, probably a year or two before that, we were given a record player that our neighbour had built from various parts. Right. He, he was one of these kind of guys who kind of tinkered away in the yeah, shed. Yeah, yeah. And one day he sort of leant over the fence and he, and he said, do you want this? And it was kind of like there was a speaker in this with no back on it and a piece of wire hanging off and there was a record player and a, some old amp that had valves sticking out of it and he said look you just stick that there and that there and and I just started doing a paper round so I was quite a wealthy sort of 10 or 11 year old at this yeah, point yeah. and I can remember going down to the local WH Smiths very Smith. excitedly and I started to buy what was really um, pop music. Yeah. Uh, I started off with Blondie. I, I perhaps did sort of go to the left a little bit. You know, I can remember buying the Tom Robinson band up against yeah. the wall. Uh, I remember a Nazareth seven. I've still got all of the sevens no that I bought. In I've got them in a case. One of the few things I have left from my um, formative years. But I still have this huge case, uh, and they've all got their prices on. You know, Do you I think, dig through I think it often? I not as much as I used to. Right. I, I did used to do it quite a lot. I, I think there'll be a time, perhaps. I mean, we were talking earlier about children. I think there will be a time where. Perhaps one day I'll be sat there with my daughter or my son and I'll be saying, look, here's some of the old songs. I mean, we we have a lot of that discussion anyway, as right. I'm sure anybody who's a parent does. And yeah. there's, there's this consistent mantra that things were much better then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, of course they were, because they were much better then for our for our parents and our grandparents. They were almost much better then, but I dig, I do dig through it then. Um, and occasionally, uh, I, I used to be a wedding DJ uh, in the uh, mid mid noughties. I, I did a series of weddings, and, and those records were most most useful for, for those kind of <laughs> events. Especially as everyone who was being married was my age, so yeah, yeah. that 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 was the music that they wanted to hear. And um, you weren't CDs were um, were very much taking a hold then, but they. They kind of wanted someone to come along and play uh, seven-inch singles on one of those sort of mad Citronic sort of decks <laughs> right. that kind of 
had these really shaky turntables <laughs> and an absolutely terrible, terrible audio quality. But yeah. I've got to say, I, I, if I see one at a car boot, I'm going to get it. Absolutely, yeah. They're too good to miss out, aren't they? They are, yeah. So, yeah, so I do dig through them, but not, not, not just so much recently. So going back to your sort of teenage years, so what... You went through school. Was there any? Did you show any sort of aptitude for music at school with music lessons, or were you learning? Did you learn any instruments? Mr. Ritter, my primary school music teacher, said that I had some musical talent and that I should learn an instrument, but for reasons that I can't really recall, I never did. Right. Um, Latterly, uh, in the last 20, 15 years, I did try and learn the guitar, but uh, I didn't get very far with that. I, I think maybe I've got an attitude problem. I, I, I just can't seem to apply myself to it. So not not playing any musical instruments, but perhaps still hoping one day that I might be able to play Happy Birthday on the piano or granddaughter or something Come like on, that. Come on, you've got to have goals, haven't you? Got to have goals, Chris. You've got to have goals, <laughs> and that's my goal. <laughs> it's an achievable goal, I'm sure. <laughs> But were you at school? Were you, um, you know, were you with a crew of people that were all into the same sort of music, or I, did did your what you enjoyed sort of set you apart from your peers? No, I, I was part of what I think you might call the indie music crew. Right. So I was a big Smiths fan. Yeah. I was one of those people that when you went to the local disco uh, and you managed to squeeze yourself through the door underage uh, and perhaps the dominant force on the dance floor was kind of jazz, funk and soul uh, as it was in a lot of Essex towns back then I I was perhaps waiting for the moment where you might get five minutes of sort of Echo and the Bunnymen or Morrissey or The Cure or something like that and I went through a, a very long journey in music where various influences kind of came at me and, and so I, I kind of went from being a, a, what I would call a heavy rock fan to a heavy metal fan to mostly the dominant pop music of the day into a, a more indie um, moody type of sound yeah. then into then I became a rockabilly had the 50s car had the quiff had the clothes right then I moved to London and interestingly enough as I said I, I reconnected with Paul Murphy recently who uh, BBE has a compilation out now and I said to him I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if that wasn't for you because right. when I came to London I was um, I was going to the Mud Club uh, the WAG um, various one-off Westworld parties as I remember them I think there was Delirium at the Astoria I'm showing my age now and I was mesmerised by what was going on um, in so, these places uh, musically I just didn't even know what I was listening to I mean the first time I went to the mud club I think it was just like uh, Jay Strongman who I have also latterly met but I think he played probably two or three hours of hip hop and rap Right. and the only hip hop or rap record that I'd ever heard was The Message 
Yeah. Um, so I just, but it just felt like the coolest thing on the planet to be involved in. And what um, brought you to London? Uh, streets were paved with gold, apparently, Chris. What brought me to London <laughs> I've heard that as was well. yeah. <laughs> Found out differently later on. But what what brought me there was that uh, I was living in uh, this end of the line, the seaside town. Near, many of my friends had gone off to university. I'd um, flunked out of uh, all my studies. Did, did just basically dropped out. Um, I was becoming increasingly bored with everything and um, some of my friends had moved to London, two of my closest friends were living in London and an opportunity came up for some free accommodation. I, I was in the early mid 80s, I was part of the kind of squatting culture right, okay. of, of Southwark yeah. Um, and there were other things that went alongside that. Perhaps we shouldn't repeat those on the podcast. But <laughs> I, I essentially was given the opportunity to go and live for free in sure. London. Yeah. I didn't have a job. Uh, I packed my case. I, I arrived about four o'clock in the afternoon. I got off the tube at Tottenham Court Road tube station. This is a true story, by the way. I walked along Oxford Street to Wardour Street job centre and an hour later I had an interview and half an hour after that I had a job I moved into the the spot and next morning I got up at five o'clock in the morning and I started work at six what were you doing I was working in a warehouse right funnily enough I've been working in a warehouse for the last six months Chris (laughs) because we've had some changes at BBE and uh, so we now love a lovely warehouse. So it's amazing how things, you know. The I started out in the mid '80s in a warehouse, and here I am in 2019 in a warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the joy! <laughs> but hey, I was in a warehouse. I was working for Mothercare, so right. Um, you know, it was interesting. I met some very interesting people. One of them, uh, a lovely chap, Brahman. He, I think, he was very significant in that he had grown up in London uh, and had lived on his own from a very early age. Right. Uh, I think 16 years old, he had his own flat. And he was really into jazz. Okay. And he was the one, perhaps, who introduced me to the bass clef. Yep. I started going down to the bass clef. Uh, He also introduced me to this wonderful, wonderful... Saturday evening in a tiny, tiny basement in um, the same street as uh, Ronnie Scott's, yeah. and it was it was a sandwich bar in the daytime. And in the basement, the place was called Clowns, or that was what the night was. And you could only fit about thirty people in there. Yeah, forget forget the name of the DJ. His name was Tim something. Can't remember his surname. And it was just this wild wild jazz dance experience in the smallest, smallest spot. And that had a massive impact on me. And after that, I started to seek out these other things. And I think that's when I started going to the 100 Club, where I think Paul was a resident, occasionally the WAG, probably other things. I'm not going to pretend that I can remember much about so it. So was there a bit of a scene around it? Do you start seeing sort of familiar faces at all these different places and you started connecting with 
I think there was there was definitely a scene. I, I'm not sure really if I was completely on the scene. Right. I, I mean, I was. I'd moved to London because I I was allured by the night. Yeah. You know, I didn't move to London because I wanted to go to museums, or go to parks, or <laughs> find my work. fortune. I just wanted to be in the club. As far yeah. as I was concerned, anywhere there was music, whether it was live music, or whether it was a DJ playing music, that was the place to be. And I regularly used to go out on my own because my friends just didn't. They weren't feeling it. They just weren't. Just said, "Well, we've had enough." Yeah. And I just. So, and I'd walk uh, because I was living in Zone One, and you know, I spent nearly all my money going out. I would I would often walk from Borough Borough Borough, which now is sort of full of you know, full of nightlife. But back then, in the in the in the mid eighties, Borough at the weekends was was just you yeah, barely saw town, anybody. Yeah, yeah. And so I would walk uh, I would walk from there, cross sort of Waterloo Bridge into the West End, go to the club. Sometimes uh, I'd only have five pounds in my pocket, and then I'd just come. I'd have to walk home. Yeah, sure. You know, um, and it was kind of like I just couldn't get enough of it. But I, I suppose there was a scene starting because what I do remember is perhaps by the late eighties, I, I I can remember by then, and I'm I'm starting to sort of buy more records. I had a bit more money in my pocket, and I was going out and I was looking for records that. Um, were, were a reflection of what I was experiencing in the club, and I remember, I can remember really clearly the Jazz Juice when the Jazz Juice com- compilations came along. I think there were Street Sounds, um, um, Morgan Carnes label, I think it was. They were, um, they were just, they just blew me away. Yeah. And then you had um, another guy on the scene at the time was a guy called Baz for Jazz. Baz for uh, jazz. Baz for jazz, and um, I, somebody did tell me recently what happened to Baz. I think he's like an IT engineer or something. But he was a very, very influential um, jazz DJ, if yeah, you like. Yeah. Who, who? I, I can't remember if he was compiling for BGP or Ace or whoever it was. But you were starting to see. Uh, I would say you were seeing a reflection of what was going on in in the clubs. You were seeing that. Right. In, uh, in in the store and, and back then of course the dominant if if not the only format was probably vinyl yeah. and cassette was yeah, yeah. beginning to die but back then you had you had Virgin on the corner of um, Tottenham Court Road and Oxford yeah. Circus yeah, yeah. you had HM I don't even know if you had HM but you had Our Price in Holborn yeah you had the big um, HMV on Oxford Street you know, I can't remember Tower came came along later but you you really were spoiled for choice when it came to yeah. buying where you would go to buy, and, and the great thing was that um, in Virgin Records, um, a very close friend of mine was working, and so, <laughs> don't arrest me. So what you would do is you'd go up to the, you'd wait till they were working, you'd go up to the listening booth with your bundle of records. It was amazing. You they had listening booths. You would carry them under your arm. You'd go yeah. up. You'd choose a few records. Then you'd go to the, you'd wait till there was no one else at the counter. You'd go up to the counter. Your friend would be there. Put one through, put one through the till. The others, whatever they did with, they go in your bag. So you know, you were, your job was a good one, really. <laughs> but you got to hustle, didn't you? That's the whole thing with well, this business, yeah. you know. So um, it was a hustle. shoot me down for my crimes. Oh, you're giving it. You're probably giving it back now, aren't you? <laughs> you're, you're giving music to the world. <laughs> 
Yeah. So when did, um, you know, like buying records and going to clubs, when did that turn into, because you started working at, was it Release Catch a Groove? So bef- before, before Release the Groove, probably, I, I'd come back from, I'd had a very, very nice time, uh, 89 to 92. I'd had a very nice time in Manchester at um, various sort of clubs, uh, I suppose most people have heard of the Hacienda. Perhaps not so many people will have heard of, say, for example, the PSV Club. Um, and Are you aware of um, like Mark Ray and what's so going on up there? Mark, Ross, Ed, and I think it was Kevin. Um, God rest his soul. I believe it was Kevin. They were part of this movement they started doing this club uh, night at the man alive club on a wednesday night called fever yeah. and th- and this club kind of managed to go beyond what a lot of clubs were doing which was was just they were just student nights yeah Th- they were doing something musically which i think was well was definitely kind of being also done in in London, yeah. but they were doing something in Manchester which no one else was doing, and they became they became the kind of go tos. You know, I can I can remember standing in the queue on a regular basis with Mick Hucknall. Right. You know, he was he was one of their regulars, and they they started to really sort of I, I suppose become the front runners in in what was what was a uh, what was a rare groove scene yeah, in yeah. manchester but also yeah. that yes they were playing hip hop i mean mark mark um, just was uh, a, a, an incredible dj yeah. like, this was yeah, yeah. back in what 1989 i can remember going to the psv club that was middle of moss side real edge to the whole thing you know i yeah. remember one time someone let off a cs gas canister and whatnot but but the atmosphere was just electric, and he used to totally smash it. And that's not to denigrate what the other guys were doing, but yeah. So you had uh, you had Fever at the Man Alive. You had um, Dancing to Death at the Saturday nights at the State. I think it was. I seem to remember that was a more um, a bit more of an R and B type thing. Yeah. Um, what yeah. took you to Manchester in the first place? Uh, odd one that I, my brother went to university there right. and I went to visit him in I think 1979 or 1980 and for some reason I decided that I was going to go and live there right. and when I actually went and lived there I hated it right. I just thought it was what, the most miserable place on earth Yeah, well. it, it, it was it really was after being in London it, it, it was just it just felt so harsh yeah. everything about it felt harsh but I got over it and then I completely fell in love with it right. <laughs> but, it, but it, did, it did I think I might have just been because I'd built up a built up a strong frame, yeah. a front, strong network of friends and maybe I was just homesick I mean I did have I did have friends in Manchester. Well, I had a couple of friends in Manchester, but um, they had their own thing going on. So, yeah. and because I, I, I'd gone there as a mature student, I think it was a bit harder to sort of integrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't have the same experience as a bunch of freshers all out, all out yeah. of school, you know. What were you studying? 
uh, humanities. So it was a very, um, it was, it was, it was a very alluring course. I got to study film and read books that I really loved and yeah. write about film noir and yeah. stuff like that. You know, so it was all quite a lot of fun, really, to, especially nice. in the last twelve months. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, that was that. And then when I when I moved back to London, I I, I found myself meeting up with a couple of guys, Mark uh, Mark French, Mark if you're there, and Aki Aki. I can't even remember his surname. And I'd known them before I'd moved to Manchester, and I and I sort of reconnected with them. And they they told me that they were they were doing these parties, sort of like these private parties that yeah. they were organising for friends and somehow I managed to sort of edge my way into this to their to their thing and so we or I anyway whatever we found a venue and we were talking about a name for the night and um, I came up with this name I said well let's call it the extended family yeah because nice name. it was essentially uh, friends, friends and groups of friends, you know, all coming together. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so we did this night uh, in this little bar, in this little, ve- very strange little venue in, in, in one of the back streets, as it happens, in Borough. Right. I mean, Borough still was sort of not really happening. It took you know? a long time, didn't it, for Borough to sort of... Yeah, and once it went, it, whew, yeah. it just went vertical, sort of takeoff almost. But So we did this party and it was, uh, I think we charged everyone three pounds. We had a flyer and banners and we, it was just sort of word of mouth. You know, people didn't really have mobile phones back then, no, but no. people often had jobs with, with uh, where they could pick up a phone. So you yeah. just, you know, you beat the drums. We had about 140 people there. I think everyone paid three pounds. And then we ploughed the money back into that and that did well. And then we did another one. And then, oddly enough, a very old friend of mine who we were talking about very um, uh, a few minutes ago. So Ross, who was part of the sort of first priority crew, yeah. he, he, he's um, we actually went to the same school. Okay. And... Um, I won't go into the details, but I am actually related to him as well. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, so Ross, 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 um, Ross had been doing extraordinarily well in Manchester. He moved down to London, and he was um, he was looking after some of the Kiss events. So he looked after, say, for example, Flipside yeah, yeah. at um, some club in Mayfair. His name might come back to me. It might not. He was doing that. He was also doing one of the nights at. The blue note, yeah. I think, as well, and he he was looking after these things, and everything everything was going well, and he and then he he started with Neil Borman and Patrick Forge, what's called the what was called the left sided or the lopsided left field music revolution or something worse to that effect <laughs> at the Free 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 Club, yeah, yeah, and that was interesting because at the time Shoreditch was a toilet. I mean, it still is in many ways, but what was <laughs> excuse me. Shoreditch was a ghost place. Yeah. There I think at the time there was I think there was the I think there was like one bar. Yeah. And it just was a place you would not go to. Yeah, yeah. No. In, in like Hackney. You wouldn't go to Hackney. No, exactly, yeah. Um unless you know you maybe just felt brave. It was genuinely considered to be quite a dangerous place. Yeah, absolutely. Um so he was doing this, and, and, and I think a year, maybe two, maybe three years in, he, he knew that the, these extended family nights have been going well, and he said, look, I know you really want to get into this. We've got this opportunity to do a night 
at uh, a bar on the Caledonian Road, which at the time was considered to be the Wild West. Yeah, well, that was um, unknown territory, wasn't it, at the time? Uh, and he said, look, uh, uh, um, I know you want to just get out there. He said, you can maybe do a bit of the warming up, but you're going to have to do all the flyering and everything else. And I was, at the time, I was a transport manager for Chevron. Uh, and I said, yeah, let's, let's, I'd love to. So I got, I got down with that. And for some reason, I remember sitting in the um, beautiful, beautiful Art Deco um, sort of 1930s cafe that used to be over the road from Release the Groove Records um, back in the late 90s. Shut down now and you sort of had the um, the waiters were dressed like um, they were kind of dressed like crew from a 1930s ocean going liner. I mean it was just brilliant. Who wouldn't Absolutely enjoy that? Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and you know course greedy landlords the place got shut down so I remember sitting in there I think Jean-Claude was there and Ross was there perhaps and I don't know if Patrick was there but for some reason it, it, the night this night it was, it was decided it was going to be called the extended family because that was the best name yeah so this started off and um, Andy Scruff who you mentioned earlier he yep. was he was one of the residents so I got to know got to know him and it just blew up it just it just went from it felt like it went naught to 15 and then suddenly 15 to 90 yeah and we had we had we would have 200 people queuing around the queuing around the block at eight o'clock in the evening yeah and, yeah and while it lasted it was it was one of those nights where there were people dancing on the tables on the bar yeah and you you had people like you know i was work i did start working at um release the groove and everybody everybody and anybody come in and they'd ask if they could DJ yeah. so I'll do it for free yeah. because it was just one of those things that had the atmosphere was just just off the off the scale yeah, that's, yeah. that's what you want yeah. and it was also musically it was it was extraordinarily um, diverse especially when I got behind the decks because when it comes to programming, my head seems to work differently to what most other people's <laughs> heads work. <laughs> but somehow it all fitted together, and then that was fun. And then um, you know, Ross, I have to say, Ross did open a lot of doors for me. Uh, I started, I was playing at the Three 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 Club quite regularly. Um, my first ever DJ gig was at the Three Three Three. There you go. There you go. What <laughs> night was it? Uh, it was some random thing that was put on. But I remember thinking, it, what oh, floor. Well, Upstairs, mother bar. What became the mother yeah, bar then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. thinking, oh, this is. So this is how my DJing career is going to go. It's my first gigs at the three, three, three. Where can I go from here? And it sort of went, went rapidly backwards after that. Well, you say that, Chris. So I've just had a flashback <laughs> while we're talking. Christ, we'll have to go to the pub after this. I've just had a flashback. My first ever DJing gig was actually at Dingwalls. <laughs> really? On um, not not. Giles and Patrick, it yeah, was, yeah. I think it was probably even pre that. It was in the, no, it wouldn't have been pre that, but it was in the 80s and I used to work, um, I was working for this uh, small furniture company uh, had had this uh, boss, Steve, Steve Giacardi, um, who he actually had a, I used to call him Geo the Jazz Man. Right. And uh, he had a radio show on a on a on a pirate called WKD, right? 
and I've forgot, just forgotten about him, you know, it's weird, but he was a huge influence on me getting into jazz right. and jazz dance because yeah. he would he would um, often turn, I was working at a warehouse, would you believe it? My life in a warehouse, <laughs> I'm going to write the book. Uh, and he'd often turn up uh, with a big stack of records, he'd been like up to Moles or Moles Jazz or Ray's Jazz, you know, Mole Jazz up in King's Cross or yeah. Ray's Jazz in in in, in um, Covent Garden. Come back, big stack of records, and he'd be, oh, you need, you know, he'd telling me what I need, what I don't need. And I just remember one time he said, oh, um, he was really good friends with the guy who started the Jazz Cafe because the original right. Jazz Cafe was in Stoke Newington Green. Yes. Uh, I don't know if his name was Capaldi, Capaldi, Capaldi. I just can't remember the guy's name. But Fair enough. Yeah, anyway, he said to me, he said, oh, such and such is putting on this um, salsa band yeah. at Dingwalls. Yeah. And I know you've got a few sort of South American records. Yeah. Do you want to come down and play some records? And I just thought this was the most amazing thing ever, that I was going to DJ in this club. I was going to play records in this club. And I just remember going along and I was just, I was, it was so hot. And I was I was shaking because I couldn't I couldn't put the needle on the record because <laughs> I was so nervous. So anyway, drifting, going around here, there, and everywhere. But yes, I just that's a flashback. I'd forgotten about that. No, it's good. You know, it's put good. that in the book. Yeah, that can go straight. <laughs> um, so how did you? Because you started working, was it? Uh, Catch a groove or release a groove? Release a groove. So I was I was going into, at the time, I was uh, shopping in Release the Groove, maybe 96, 97, 98. Dates get a bit mixed up. Were you allowed but, out the back? <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, no. I wasn't allowed out the back. <laughs> I was allowed out the back at Quaff Records, but that's a whole other story. That was in the very early 90s, but that's, that's just something random and just bizarre. Um... So, yeah, I was going in there, I was working really long hours, doing lots of overtime, and I was handing all of the overtime cash to Jean-Claude. Yeah. And I was handing a lot of cash over. I mean, some of those records I still haven't opened. And so got got really good relationship with Jean-Claude. We had a good laugh, and he, I told him that I was getting made redundant. I was kind of waiting for the payoff, and he said, well you might as well just come and work here because you'll probably be safer behind the counter. And he was kind of right. So that's what happened. And retail wasn't really for me. I think I was there a year and a half. But right. um, I mean, I started out as a grave digger and that was easier than working in the record shop, to be frank with you. I just found it. In what sort of sense? I, I just, I think I found trying to impassion people about things that I was really excited about and very long hours working in a record shop was a very very long day yeah you know it was um I, I think I just needed something a bit more physical right you know and, and sticking the spade in the ground for hours on end really suited me it's a true story <laughs> um if you don't believe me I'll send you the pictures and um so I, I just I found it uh, I just found it very tiring, right? And I think it was just because you were standing around, and I wasn't really I was used to being very active 
you know, I was used to being in a warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you've got lots of things, haven't you? You've got kind of probably music that's quite loud because record shops mm. tend to have that. Yeah, you had to... And you've got to try and talk to people you know. and find out from that. So there's a lot going on. And if your mm. brain, if you have like the kind of brain, I get tired with that. If you have the kind of brain that can't cope with that, it is a really tiring experience. My brain it? can't cope with very much at all now, Chris. But <laughs> bottom line was it, it didn't really suit me. So I, I think a year and a half in... I uh, I needed to sort of get out of there, and I remember phoning up Peter. Uh, I I was aware of BBE. I'd bought the early releases. I bought Stop and Listen Volume One. Yep. I bought uh, Legendary Deep Funk Volume One. Some of the other titles, and I'd been doing uh, as well as the extended family thing was sort of coming to an end. But I'd been I'd made a bit of a name for myself doing flyering. Right. So I, I started off doing the extended family. Neil Borman showed me the ropes. He, he showed me all the places where the flyers had to go. And then I started getting phone calls from people going, they'd get my mobile and they'd go, um, can you do some flyering from us? Like the soul jazz would ring up and say, can yeah. you do flyering from us? Your flyers are like, every, they're just everywhere. Yeah. And I think it's because I was a paper boy as a kid. I just got this desire to deliver stuff, you know. <laughs> So I ended up having this, you know, maybe I could have been uh, a rival to Don't Panic or whatever it was called at the time, but I was dropping off these flyers everywhere and I knew that um, at the time BBE had a Sunday night at Bar Rumba and they had a Friday night at Bar Rumba. Uh, So they had night people um, uh, at um, Rumba on a Friday, which was more of a kind of disco sort of house thing and uh, Bubbling Over was uh, an R&B night. Yeah, and so I rang up Peter. I think it was Kiri who gave me his number. Thank you, Kiri. Yes, and I asked him if he wanted any flyering done, yeah. and he sort of said no, thank you. But he then went on to say, "We said what you, well, he knew me from the shop. He said, well, what are you up to?'" I said, "Well, I don't really know. Really, I just you know, I'm just. I was kind of lucky enough. I just got and I got a re- I had redundancy money, so I didn't need to yeah. worry. I had a buffer, yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't wasn't under pressure. And he said, "Well." Why don't you come around and push some paper wow. around a desk? Very laid back. So had a chat with my mate Ross. Yeah, there he is again. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? He said, yeah, you've got to do it. This is what you wanted to do forever, you know. So off I went to BBE uh, Monday morning, I think the next week. And uh, Peter answers the door in his dressing gown and I'm sort of, taken down this little corridor and there I am this is the this is the reality of an independent label it's tiny it's um it's cramped it's kind of in someone's bedroom yeah and and that's the deal so very but very quickly um things started to move well, very quickly things started to move very, very fast. So the first thing was that uh, Peter said, right, we're going to do the Masters at Work 10th anniversary albums. Yeah. And I need you to make a list. Now, I didn't really have the knowledge. She knew the classics, but I knew someone who did. A friend of mine, uh, Spencer, was obsessive about Masters at Work. Yeah. He was obsessive. And he's one of his claims to fame is that when Catch Groove, which was the forerunner to release the groove, it was the same team, it was Abby yeah. and Gary. When Catch a Groove was open, 
weeks. Um, Spencer's told me that he only missed two Saturdays. Right. And all the others, he was there from opening time to closing time. Yeah. Stood by the counter. Just mad for it. So he, I said, oh, da, 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 and he said, fine. So he gave him some paper and he wrote six pages back wow. and front, A4. He just, he said, these are the tracks with all the different versions. Yeah. These are the tracks that should be on there. Yeah. And then obviously then we electronicized it and then Louis and Kenny kind of went through and added stuff that they, you know, but that was the kind of, maybe that was the starting point and then it was the licensing and I'd never done any licensing before in my life I didn't you know but everything was just throw, throw in at the deep end yeah you know there was no there was no night classes in um, music's business theory it was just you just gotta learn yeah you just gotta do it and so from from that small um, Langton Road flat Masters of the Work 10th Anniversary Albums Welcome to Detroit Instrumentals, um, uh, Dimitri from Paris's Disco Forever and so you know all came out of this tiny flat yeah and we used to get uh, after a while we started you know, people would ring up from America and they'd go like can we and talk to the A&R department, you know, and I can't do the accent, but they'd ring <laughs> up and they'd be asking for like the press office and yeah, all this, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and um, you'd just go, yeah, I'll just put you on hold. Come back. And then you'd put on a different <laughs> voice. <laughs> and it was just... But that's, that's, that's the way of independent labels. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think we'll get to that in, in a minute of like how kind of the things have changed from then to now across the board but so basically you started working from BBE and you've been there ever since yeah I've been at BBE since 1999 okay so how's how have things changed sort of over that time obviously you've had lots the, the of people decimation now. of <laughs> or the perceived decimation of sales due to the internet right yes I mean think think things things have changed in Things have changed in many ways, but in some ways, things are the same. Yeah. Um, digital came along and began to, the download marketplace began to dominate, um, become the dominant sort of uh, format. Online stores, due, probably very notably in, in the UK, Juno, began to take over the they became people began I don't know if people got lazy I don't know if they began to shop online because you could sort of go to one place and just order everything yeah but something collapsed in the early noughties and many labels distributors and most of Soho record buying culture disappeared. Right. And it, it felt like it disappeared very quickly. Yeah. I think someone reminded me recently that at one point there were 27 record shops 
in that kind of Soho yeah, yeah. square mile. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't name them all and whether there were 27, but I'm sure if we um, sat down with pen and paper, we'd probably be able to get to 15 or 20. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, I... And, and just something happened. The record shop started going. The label started going. You, you went from a situation where you'd press, you know, the, the, the standing joke was you put anything on a 12-inch and you'll sell a 1,000 without batting an eyelid. Yeah. Um, now it's like put anything on a 12-inch and if you press 100, you might be taking a big risk. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's thing, things, things have changed. Um, things have changed in many regards, but uh, if you then start to sort of look at the kind of figures that say maybe the BPI for example are uh, banding around or the trade and industry sector music is one of our biggest exports yeah. and music is something that we are consuming to a level which perhaps we've never consumed before yeah. everywhere you go now everywhere you go well it feels like it to an apart from the local library it won't be long there's music yeah and some in some way you're probably paying for it yeah so i i i I, my view tends to waver around i'm not um i'm not a hugely consistent person but i would say that digital format has been a hugely positive thing and i probably would not have said that five years ago or ten years ago but I, I look at it like this someone broke it down for me and said look digital never out of stock yep just think about all the distribution all the warehouse issues yeah <laughs> think about all those distribution <laughs> those uh, issues and also all those kind of thing. think about the planet all that yep. black plastic yeah, yeah. Um, I mean yeah I love records I believe that uh, digital um, format is is where we should be. I, I think there is definitely a place for records. Um, the sad thing, the, the big sad thing, and we have we have seen a, a renaissance, uh, a recovery of this to an extent. And BBE's got in on the act. It opened its home store in its 20th anniversary. Yeah. But the, there has been an, a recovery of the record shop. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we've certainly not gone back to the, the numbers of record stock shops that there once were. Uh, I think it's, if you think about, if you wanted to start really break it down about the economics of running a record shop, it's, it's kind of not, it's, it's going to be hard to work. Record shops now have to be, they have to be a lot more than what they were before. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, you want to be able to buy a coffee. You want to be able to buy a beer from next door and take it in the shop and swig it. You want to see your favourite DJ spinning in there one uh, occasionally and all crowding round yeah. the, the the deck. You know, while some of these things perhaps uh, were were there in the nineties, I think I think record shops have to work a lot harder. Yeah, well, I mean, to exist now, I and mean, to stay I, to I've, stay in existence. Yeah, I've been up to the Institute of Light and it doesn't feel like a record shop. That's because it's a bar. <laughs> and it was a cinema, yeah. but it's not anymore. <laughs> no. But do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I can see how that is the case. Mm. I mean, I enjoy shopping at If Music because I like this, the experience of going and sitting and talking with Jean-Claude and him giving you the stuff 
that comes out of a conversation rather than just looking through racks. Jean-Claude has an ability that I have never experienced in any record shop. And, And he has this canny ability to almost like a photographic memory, if you like. He remembers everything you bought. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow he knows everything that you want to buy. Yeah, yeah. You need this. But he hits the bullseye with a consistency which is which is a little bit alarming. Yeah. He, he, he's extraordinary. And going to see Jean-Claude is like going to visit your tailor or yes. going to visit your barber. Yeah. Because he will give you a service, a very personalised, very specialised service that you will not experience, or I've never experienced no, in any no, other no, shop. No, me either. So, um... There you go, Jean-Claude. Yeah, big love to you, Jean-Claude. Um, yeah, sorry, we got into a bit sidetracked from what we were talking about. That's what this is all about, Chris. <laughs> um, I'm struggling to get back onto my thread. <laughs> So, um, you know they call me. Uh, you know they call me Mr. Tangential, don't you? I didn't know that. No. <laughs> and I actually have my own label with my wife Catherine <laughs> called "I Am Tangential," and it's called "I Am Tangential" because I am. Well, I'm glad you sidetracked me then because you've proven your name. Um, so thinking about, I mean, I was going to ask you about like what BBE did through that period where kind of the physical sales dropped off and like what you did or like how you sort of hunkered down through that period and then what how you've now come out of it from my perspective it seems that you're really hot on compilations you're finding old music putting it together you're letting personalities within music or you know people that you know compile stuff to put out are you is that sort of was that a conscious decision to kind of make that a, a sort of a, a big focus? I think BB. I, I wasn't there at the beginning, but I can recount some of Peter and Ben's Ben Jolly's words, who were the founders, and they were doing club nights. They came from um, clubs and people asking them, "Where can we buy these records?" Yeah. Many of these records were extraordinarily hard to find back then. People were paying silly money for James Brown records, not yeah, to yeah. say that they weren't worth it. But these were these were records that came out on major labels that were actually really, really hard to find. Yeah. And so they kind of came up with this idea that they would try and put together an album of some of the some of the um, songs, some of the pieces of music that were played in the club, and they kind of realised that there was a need to have. Um, a name on that record, a curator, someone yeah. who people recognised, who who would kind of op- help to open the door yeah. to the sale. So yeah. Bob Jones at the time um, had uh, a, a, a fantastic show on Kiss FM called The Surgery. Yeah. I think it was eleven till two. I used to record it religiously every Sunday night because I'd always fall asleep at half twelve. At 4am, I'd get up and go and work in the warehouse. It's a true story. I did go and work in the warehouse. But I'd have the tape so I could listen to it in the car on the way there, on the way back. And if I was really lucky, I would wake up at 2am and and record Patrick Forge's Cosmic Vortex as well. Um, Anywho, 
So they decided that um, they were going to do this thing, and that's they essentially they put together a track listing, or Bob put together a track listing, and they learnt on the job, yeah. if you like, yeah. how do we license these records that rang up Universal? We want to license some music from you. Well, you need to send us a fax. And they went out and bought a fax machine, and then they somehow they found out what to say and then and then Unibus said well you need to be you need to have a company so they went out and they bought a company and, and so on and so forth they just forth, took you know. the steps yeah they just took the steps took the steps and, and that's how it started uh, and in the early in the early uh, noughties BBE lent itself more to artist projects yeah. and it was doing it was doing some comps as part of its uh, arrangements that it had with Rapster yeah. You know, the Kings of series uh, and it was I think it was so there was probably a bit of a hiatus if you like for BBE sort of two, 2002 2003 what was it um, Funk Spectrum Volume 3 yeah. Keb Darge and um, uh, Pete Rock I think it was that came out what two, two, 202 203 and then there was this gap uh, for maybe three years no not three years maybe, maybe two or three years actually there was a gap so maybe um funk spectrum volume three was two, 201 but it was it was late 204 yeah when we started putting out compilations again yeah. and the marketplace had really changed yeah however there was still a hunger for compilations essentially they're they're playlists yeah yeah you know the, 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 the same you go onto a Spotify playlist, historically, you would have gone out and bought a compilation. And yeah, that, yeah. And that's, um, that's what it was. And um, there's still a, a great thirst for these things. I mean, it's, you, you, do need, uh, you do need to do something different. Yeah. Uh, I think people, people want to... The, the, our audience wants to buy a compilation that has records on it, uh, you know, has has songs on it, pieces of music on it that they haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah. And of course, that's always going to get harder. Yeah. But it just seems to me that these things just keep coming, and um, yeah, no one's going to get rich, but they'll 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 keep things ticking over. Okay, so we're sort of clocking on for some time here. How is sort of the music industry and music in general for you right now? to coin the, the title of the podcast, The Current State of Music. Where is it right now for you? <laughs> uh, where is it? Oh, lordy. Um, I think... That's a really, really hard question to answer. I think it's, it's very, very exciting to be in this industry. Yeah. Even after all these years, like you still even find after it even after all, all, all these years, I, most mornings I still do leap out of bed. Brilliant. I'm quite excited to be in it. Anyone who might be thinking about doing it, just be aware that it is very very hard work. It's not. Some people go to work, yeah, and then they come home, and then they're not at work, yeah. Most people who are in this industry, it's it's kind of like an infection. Right. It, it will be in your it will be in your blood. It will be in your psyche, and it's a twenty four hour thing. Yeah. Your whatever part of it you're involved in, if you're getting into it for the money, I think you're making a big mistake. You're getting into it because you just 
perhaps want to be in some small way part of part of this thing yeah um which to many people and even to me to this day still remains a bit mysterious yeah it's but but I suppose if it wasn't mysterious, it wouldn't have the allure. No. There is something alluring about it. You're, you're going to, whatever you're doing in this industry, there's a good chance that you will find yourself surrounded by characters yeah. that you wouldn't meet if you were working at HSBC Bank. Yeah. I think that, I think as a general rule, I think the music industry is in a healthy state. However... As with many, many businesses, the money, the, the bulk of the money is with a very, very small number of people. Yeah, so that hasn't changed. I, I, I mean, you've seen, of course, you've seen the rise of independent labels, perhaps most, most notably Beggars Group, XL Recordings, yeah. which I, I'm pretty sure is still an independent label, but because of Perhaps Adele, Adele or, or <laughs> I, I think you know Prodigy. Even I think are on there and, and various other um, various other very very big bands. I've, but I've stayed in Richard Russell's um, holiday home in the New Forest. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So there, I'd say there, for him, it's probably there, doing all right. Yeah, there are there are independents that have given the given the majors a real run. Yeah, uh, and that are willing to make the kind of investments in in music which i think has a longevity yeah um domino is uh, a label that i think is really really important um simon raymond's is it simon raymond's label which i think is based in brighton from the cocteau twins and do you know what? i always forget his label but i was a huge 4ad fan yeah uh, and um i know you mean i can't remember yeah it will come to us but there are people who are willing to take risks uh, uh, and those risks I think mean that we will have music that we will be able to enjoy that was recorded and released now yeah. or we'll be able to enjoy it in another 50 years. I, I, I feel as if the major labels, while they maybe are making some investments, there, there is so much music which is... It just doesn't seem to have any... There doesn't seem to be any consideration of quality. It's simply about turning uh, turning around profit very, very quickly. And, I, and I, I, I feel strongly that a lot of this music will be lost very, very quickly. No one will be interested. Do you think it's become a sort of throwaway commodity like a lot of things? In some cases... It- <laughs> I guess I could sound very outspoken if I said yes, because it maybe is an insult to those those who created it. Yeah. And I and I do try and find a quality yeah. in everything that I listen to. Having children, I think, brings you to a place where you perhaps watch films yeah. that you wouldn't normally watch. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I love Shrek. I love Toy Story. Um, I love other things, which shouldn't I mention? Um, you know, I, I really like Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, I like a bit of Ollie Mears, Justin Bieber. You know, I, I'm not going to say that these people are rubbish because I don't think they are. No. You know, it's not, you know, my daughter was listening to something the other day and I, and I said, oh, who's this? And she said, who's that ginger-headed guy who's the biggest selling, um, he's from Ipswich. 
biggest selling artist. I'm a ginger Ed man. Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. I said, who's this? He said, it's Ed Sheeran. I said, really? Because I just can't get... Oh, I started watching Ed Sheeran on the Pyramid stage a few few years ago. It was a Glastonbury. I had to turn it off. I couldn't yeah, watch yeah, it. Yeah. Or I went over to the other stage or whatever. But I... Yeah, there. I think there is a quality. It's not for me as a general rule, but no. I, I, what I do try and do is not because I'm so PC that I don't want to upset anybody. I just try and find out what it is that's appealing. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a positive trait mm. to have, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So music's in a good place. I I think so. I mean, yeah. yes, I would like to see. I would like to see the. the the purse, if you like, the the bank of cash. I'd like I'd like to see it spread around more evenly, yeah. so that some of the um, some of the more some of the up and coming talent. And I think there is an incredible layer of talent out there. And, and, and yes, it's often recounted that it's a lot harder for young musicians now to develop because we haven't got the right benefit system that allowed them to develop, say, in the eighties. But yeah. I just think it would be. I think, wouldn't it be great if there was a bit more of an opportunity for some of these people to be able to develop their talent without having to concern themselves about where they're going to live or what yeah. they can put in their mouths, you know? I do don't you think to... they've almost got to kind of do that on their own now? Because the days have gone of having a demo, somebody hearing that and going, OK, we're now going to fund you to become that artist. It's kind of like you have to come off the streets as almost the finished product. And then, is that... I think, think, I think it's... I just think it's really really hard yeah and this probably sounds terrible but I my suspicion is that as as some I think a famous actress said recently that the only actors and actresses who are succeeding are coming from upper middle class to upper class backgrounds Mm. because they're the only ones who have the necessary support yeah familial support for them to go through the system yeah um and there are days where i think maybe this is to an extent this is happening in music yeah which is you know a bit scary but i guess i'd be really maybe i'm sounding really naive maybe it's always been like that but i do think a lot of the you know if you look at some of the punk bands that came through yeah, yeah. of course joe strummer comes from what was his father a diplomat or whatever I think and you know and he's clearly not a working class boy he went to private school as you find out a lot of these people did but but at the same time there were a lot of people who came from real hardship and went on to do extraordinarily well in music some of them did very well and then they just became stupid Morrissey (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) let's not go on the Morrissey no let's not go there that's a deep well (laughs) So uh, we've already sort of given some advice. Have you got any sort of particular pointers for anyone who maybe wants to work in the industry or start a label or, you know, alongside, along the similar lines of, of to, to your career? I, I think you've got, to, you've got to listen to your heart, follow what you believe is right, but get as much information from people who are experienced as possible really really listen especially on the business side don't sign anything until you're really sure that it's a good thing to do yeah and so always always check with somebody who knows there will be somebody out there who will want to help you yeah most people that i've ever come across in this industry are 
contrary to perhaps what many of us think, they are incredibly approachable, very willing to help. They might not answer their emails, they not, might not answer their phones, but that's because they're probably being bombarded. Yeah. But they are generally really, really pleased and ready to help. So just make sure you find out if you're going to sign as an artist, if you're going to sign as a songwriter, a publishing contract, if you're going to press up a record, uh, if you're going to use a studio, you know, just ask around. Ask around of people who've got clearly got some experience, who have yeah. already created a bit of a, a place for themselves in the industry. Ask around, get as much information as you can. Feel free to read books about the music industry, but yeah. I do genuinely believe they're a waste of time. Because do you think, because we've touched on this before we started recording, it does seem like this big edifice, and if you're on the outside, you have to pass through certain sort of gatekeepers to get in. <laughs> But once, yes, yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's ridiculous, isn't it? But it isn't like that, is it? So, no, well, there no. might be some facets of it that are a bit like that, like major mm. labels or whatever. But mm. on a kind of more grassroots level, people are, and on a one-to-one basis, people seem really friendly and willing to help and open. Mm. Would you sort of agree with that? I, 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 I do agree with that, Chris, and uh, and I do feel that you, you probably will have to do something for very little money or no money to start mm. and and you need to know where the limit is on that yeah work work hard work hard if you really mean it if you really want to be in in this business it, it won't feel like work yeah everything will just be exciting interesting and you'll probably have a voracious appetite and you won't be able to get enough of it yeah. Whatever it is, whether it be uh, hearing new music, in a studio, producing, engineering, mastering, whatever it is, I think you, you're you probably going to carry on enjoy it. If it's, if it's genuinely for you, you'll, you'll never stop enjoying it. Of course, we all have our off days, but you, you won't. You just, you'll just enjoy it forever. If, if, if you were born to be in it, then that's what it'll be. Okay. Well, I think on that positive note, I'm going to say thanks for joining me, Lee. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. When I listen back to this, I shall uh, I shall run for cover. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Lee Bright. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. He tells a good story, and uh, I certainly hope there's going to be a time soon where we spend a few pints together chewing the fat so if you have enjoyed this one and you're new to the podcast then there are lots of episodes to go at we're on season two that's episode five i think in season one there was eight or nine episodes there's a whole bunch of mixes some of the mixes that sit underneath these these conversations i put up as well so on the first series there's mixes from mr scruff dj format mark ray Damien from Skint and I'll also be posting the mixes from this series probably when I've finished putting out all the episodes then I'll put all the mixes up for you to download and enjoy as well because they contain great music and give you sort of a context as to who who the people are that I'm talking to so we've still got some great guests coming up in this series 
trying to line things up with a couple of really big names that I'm really excited to talk to. But coming next week, not that he's not a big name, but he's a... It's maybe the conversation that blew me away the most. Out of all these, sometimes people say something that just resonates so heavily that it sits with me for a few days. And the guest next week kind of said a few things that literally stopped me in my tracks and made me think for about a week. Really sort of sat on my mind heavily, but I'm not going to give it away, but I'm... The person that I am chatting to next week is a guy called Arrow. He is a graffiti writer, artist, record collector, sometime DJ, sometime broadcaster. And he's a really nice guy, very opinionated, but doesn't throw those opinions out without any weight behind them. So I hope you can join me for that arrow on the current State of Music podcast dropping next Saturday, nice and early. And if you are enjoying these podcasts, it would be great if you could go to iTunes, obviously like and subscribe, and if you could leave a review, that would be brilliant. If you do find some inspiration in some of these stories, then if you can talk about that in the review, because then I can take those reviews to other people. Because I think everyone would like to think that they are somehow inspiring other people. Just leaving a review saying, oh yeah, it's a nice conversation, won't get me more guests. But if it has kind of touched you some way or inspired you to sort of change what you're doing or to forge a new career or whatever it is, then uh, if you could mention that, obviously guests are going to be more interested in pushing something forward that actually helps push people's lives forward and I'd like to think that some of these conversations are doing that they're certainly doing that for me and I hope that they're doing that for you too so that's enough of a ramble from me as I said we're back this time next week and there's loads to go out if you go up on iTunes there's loads of episodes and mixes and stuff for you to enjoy So until then, providing we're all still here next week, I bid you farewell. Take care. Peace.